Ephesians 4, we're in 25 to 32. We're, we're at this part where Paul like, just lumps on a whole lot of habits that we need to change from our old self to our new self. And he, he's very firm. Uh, I've said it before, you, you may feel like this is legalism, the do's and don'ts, but it's about who we have become. Christ claimed us to be holy, and pursuing holiness is not legalism, uh, but rather uh, uh, being a faithful servant of Christ. So let me read this passage. We're going to jump into uh, what it says. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, mouth but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and calamity and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Living in this new life means replacing our sinful habits with righteous habits. Uh, last week, we looked at how Christ, through the work on the cross, put away the old self, or put to death who we once were, and made us alive in Christ. We died to the old self, we said it before, we quoted from uh, Galatians, we were crucified, literally, our spiritual life, our old self, died with Christ. It's a mystery that makes no sense to us. Is profound that we could die spiritually and be raised to life with new spiritual self. We call it being born again. And being born again comes with a new way of life. And as we fill ourselves with the Word of God, this new way of life will grow in us. Jesus uh, tells us multiple times in the scripture, uh, particularly around Matthew 7, about uh, a, a Grape tree bears fruit, or a thorn tree bears thorns. He says you will know them by their fruit. So the evidence of salvation is over time, not immediately, but over time, your old self will continue to die, and the self of Christ will grow up in you. But this will only take place while that will be a nurturing that new self. When we look at 1 Peter 2, it says, if you want to grow up in your salvation, crave spiritual milk, which is the word. If you want to grow up in your salvation, you have to crave spiritual milk, which is the word. We have a new duty as a Christian to read the word and pray, and as we read the word, pray that spirit of God that dwells within us grows all the more stronger, and he sanctifies. He does the work of sanctification. That is purifying us, cleansing us from the old self to the new self. Now we get a list, a list here of, of don't do this and now do this. He gives us a negative, put off falsehood, 
actually doing the right thing. We're doing God's design. Or we're living out God's design. So it's not a matter of just not doing the wrong thing, but it's also saying yes to God. God, I want to follow your way. I love Psalm 119, which is about the love of God's word and his statutes and his rules. It's a, it's a delight to my soul. It's a delight to my soul. God's rules are a delight to our soul. That is a good thing. So when we read this, we're not seeing, oh, this is a burden, I have to, I have to do more things. We're seeing this beautiful instruction from a loving Father who is encouraging us, I've made you new. I've enabled you to live for you, so live that way. But it still takes work and discipline. So we're in this tension of, yes, it's God's work, it's grace, but we all want to discipline and beat our body like Paul does, so that we do not allow the old garments of the flesh and body of our life to rule and reign over us. We'll unpack a bit more of what that looks like as we go through this passage. So Paul, in his writing here, this is a negative and a positive, and he also adds in a reason for why we live this way. A doctrine to believe in, doctrine, sets of beliefs, we go through this quite regularly, particularly through this book. Uh, it is important what you believe, because what you believe shapes what you do. Doctrine shapes the practical in your life. Doctrine, the fact, doctrine is literally what we believe about God, sin, the devil, the spirit, the church, Christ's death and resurrection. These things shape the way we live. So in this first one, it says, put off falsehood, speak true. Why? Because we're one. We're members of one another. We are the church. The reason we want to do this is we're no longer separate. That's what the world does, living falsehood and uh, lies. But we, we are one. We're harming ourselves as the body of Christ. And we're going to unpack that one first. So be thinking as we unpack this, what does it look like to fill ourselves with Christ? What does it look like to know what we believe so that it changes the way we live? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. With the word therefore, he draws our attention back to the old passage. Whenever we see that, we go back to the verses beforehand, maybe the chapter beforehand, to see what he is referring to. And what he's referring to here is the work of Christ. So last week we looked at the fact that we have learned Christ. We haven't learned a religious system, we've come to know a person. And in knowing that person, we want to follow that person and his way of life. We see that he, through the death and resurrection, has put on the old self and put on the new self. We have now Christ's righteousness in us. So because of this, is what it's saying, because of what Christ has done, our doctrine, because we believe that he died and rose from the dead, we now put away apostles. We now put away lying and deceit. We now put away a deceptive attitude in life. You see, before you were a Christian, you were under the grip and power of the devil. And we know that the devil, his native tongue is lying. It says that. His native tongue is lying. So everything the devil says is a lie. 
He is deceptive and he will try and persuade you to think that your thoughts are right or persuade you to think that the word says something it doesn't. He is outright a liar. And if we are to put off the old self, or as it says at the start of verse 17, no longer walk like the world does, the Gentiles do, if we are to no longer walk as the world does, we need to put away falsehoods, lying, even white lies. Because when we live in that, we're actually imitating the devil. And we're called as Christians to imitate Christ. Now in our new self, we are under the grip of Christ and protection of Christ. He is our Lord and Saviour and King, so we want to imitate Him and follow His example. And He isn't told that He spoke the truth, but He is the very truth. Isn't that incredible? Jesus didn't just speak the truth, no, He is truth. It's who He is. He is the ultimate truth, the only truth. He is the only way to the Father, the only means of salvation, the King of all creation, the Creator of all things. He is truth. So as a new self created through Christ, we put off the old self, which is falsehood, a lying, deceitful behaviour, and we put on the new self, which is speaking the truth. The Bible tells us that truth sets us sets us free. How hard is it to tell the truth? Even now, in my flesh, I find it so hard to tell the truth. I don't want to own things. What does it feel like? It's hard to speak the truth. In this world, we are deceived to believe that lying is easier. But what we find is when we do actually bring the truth out, that feeling deep down in us that we've been holding in for so long, And we feel a freedom that is there. You see, one of the greatest lies in our, our world at the moment is, is stated in Romans 1 when it says that the world has exchanged the truth about God, the truth about God, all that God is and He's designed for life, for a lie. The world believes a lie. Whether it's atheism, agnosticism, or another religion, it's a lie. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they serve creatures rather than the Creator. We see that the false life, and what Paul is saying here, is the whole life before we were Christians is just a complete lie. Everything about our life was a lie. Now, in Christ, our life is truth. We live in truth. We worship and serve the Creator, not the creation. We worship and serve the Creator, not the creation. And the reason we don't live in falsehood that He gives us is for we are members of one another. The church shouldn't be a gossipy workplace. That rather than confronting one another and having a conversation with each other, we talk about each other behind our back. When someone disappoints us or annoys us or hurts us, we go to another person rather than them. That is falsehood. That is lying. That is deceit. We are part of a new people, a new nation. We saw it at the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3. A new nation under God, no longer Jew or Gentile, rich and poor, slave free. None of that. We don't hold on to those things anymore. We let go of them and we come to a new 
people under Christ and, and we are one body. And the body is affected by lying and falsehood, by deceit. Just like if one part of your body is out of order and not working well, your whole body is affected. So the same is true in this body. One of us living in falsehood will affect all of us. It will start to create disunity. And we know how much Paul has written about that already. He cares about the unity of the church because it's something Jesus cares about. So when we look at why, the doctrine behind not lying, the doctrine behind that is the one body. We treat each other as if they are our body parts. We don't want to harm ourselves so well we want to harm each other. Be angry, verse 26, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If you remember back to January, I know you all remember my sermons really well, Psalm 4, we preached on Psalm 4, and Psalm 4, 4 tells us this very quote, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yes, we can be angry and not sin. Anger is a rival, there's a time for anger. And any Christian who doesn't have anger at anything in this world, maybe a little too tolerant, or maybe doesn't care enough. Because 1 John 5, 19 tells us that this world is under, under the control of the evil one. This world is under the control of the evil one. That means this world, we don't agree with. We saw that last week. Do not walk like the world does. Or do not walk like the Gentiles do. So we can't agree and be comfortable and be passive towards everything that is going on in this world. There are things in this world that should grate against us, against us so much that we feel anger. Jesus felt angry when his father's house, the temple, was being used for personal gain and for uh, or, and cheating people. And he turned over the table and he drove them out in anger. In the second coming, when Jesus pours out his wrath on all those who aren't in him, his anger will be just and right. So as a Christian, there is a time for anger. But our anger should not have sin behind it. There are things in this world that we should be angry about. I get angry when I hear of churches who have turned away from the Bible but still claim to be churches. I get angry when I hear the abortion laws continuing to increase. I get angry when I hear of uprising of racism in our nation and the nations around the world. And that's right anger. But does our anger help the situation? Because when it comes to sin, it's no longer helpful. Is the way we get angry, or the, how we're acting in our anger, is that helping the situation? Is it making a, a, is it making us see Christ in the situation? And today we're, there's a lot of anger going on. Like right now in this world, there is serious anger. And there's many Christians that are getting involved in that, and they should care and get involved. But how are they making a difference? Because anger easily turns to sin. Even righteous anger, even 
that it is meant to see. And the reason Paul warns us is because we believe in the devil. Verse 27, they give no opportunity to the devil. Our righteous anger, the devil can start lying and manipulating and twisting and allowing us to give way to the devil so that we start sinning in our anger. So what was once righteous is now sinful because we've allowed the devil to cause us to become unhelpful rather than helpful in the situation. We believe in the evil one and the evilness in this world, so we need to be careful that our anger doesn't become an obsession in us. So he gives us a solution. Don't let the sun go down in anger. Don't hold on to it. Don't carry it on day after day, sitting in your anger, which turns to bitterness and malice and slander and all other things that we'll see later on in the past. Finish at the end of the day knowing that you don't care as much as Jesus cares. Go to bed at night resting in the fact that your love for justice is nothing on the love that Jesus has for justice. So you becoming some justice warrior that runs from protest to protest isn't probably going to help. But what could help is if you start preaching the gospel in your own neighborhood or workplace. Because the gospel genuinely changes things. The gospel changes lives and softens hearts and puts on a new self in people. So anger that turns to sin is turning from the gospel and thinking that in our own strength, in our own merit, in our own wisdom, we can change things. Anger that turns to sin is anger that turns from Jesus and come up with another solution for the problem. The only solution for the problem is that the gospel be preached all around the world. So when we're angry, don't sin. Don't harbor it, don't sit with it for a long period of time. Desire justice like our God desires justice and preach the gospel so that we can see change in this world. Let the thief no longer steal, verse 28, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with one another. Stealing in these days, in those days, was commonplace. Many people had seasonal work, so they would work for the summer or spring in the harvest time, and then they would have a period, a long period with no work. It was just sort of common that you survived by stealing. Or Paul is writing now that you are a new creation. Stealing is never a way to live. It breaks the eighth commandment that God gave. Instead, he says, work for honest gain. And he gives us a reason to work. To share with one another. To share with anyone in need. You know, work, and sometimes I think our world can get into a bad attitude or mindset of work. We were created to work. Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered the world, we were given work to do. Rule the land and subdue it, make it grow and flourish, careful for the environment. That was what Adam was given in his first job. We need to remember that our work today is, it gives us a purpose. We are meant to work. We're meant to enjoy 
work and work at it as if we're working for God. So you've got the worst boss in the world, you do it by working for the Lord instead. Without work, the natural place in our heart can it lead to emptiness and worthlessness, and that's because it goes against our action of the work. The Bible has so much to say about work. Proverbs read a lot about it. It tells us to study the ants and watch them work and how busy they are. But laziness leads to poverty. So work is a good thing. But what Paul wants us to understand here is why do we work? Why do we work? John Wesley said, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. Paul's reason for us, any of us, new believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus in the new creation, wants us to work for each other. Wants us to work not for our own gain, not to build up our own little kingdom or our empire, but rather to build his kingdom and help those in need. John Piper stated that there are only three options. You either work to get, sorry, you either still get, you work to get for yourself, or you work to get and work to get. You either still to get, you work to get for yourself, or you work to get for in order to get. The three options we have, and we see that it's so connected to who Jesus is, the idea that takers become givers. Jesus is always going to give up. He created the world. And he comes back into that world. And he gives his life and his spirit. And when he preached to Zacchaeus, a man who was a taker and a robber and a cheat, Zacchaeus became a giver. And our new self and the way Christ changes, changes us and as we study Christ, remember we learn from Christ, we We've learned a person, we imitate that person, and that person is naturally a giver. As we grow to be more like him, we will see that we are a giver. Giving in the church is one of the most basic steps in the Christian life. Being generous with our time and our resources and our money. We spend in our culture so much on comfort. We have that much excess in Australia, excess income, excess resources, that we spend the majority of our income on comfort, not on what we need. That is a concern. I'm not saying comfort's a bad thing, we should have and we can enjoy comfort, but how much do we spend on comfort? A great majority of these budgeting books, even Christian budgeting books, call us to live in, in extreme ways, on like 40% of our budget, so that we can save for the future and store up treasures for this life. Not what we see in the scriptures, but rather to store up treasures in heaven. As a new believer, as a, as a new creation, rather, and putting on the new self, we walk and work in a way that naturally wants to give to others. Verse 29, let us, let no corrupting talk, corrupting talk come out of your 
up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, I pray with all my heart that I will be able to hang my tongue before I go. I'm giving myself a long time because I know how hard it is to tame the tongue. James says it's impossible. The book of James says it's impossible. Proverbs writes immensely, deeply about the tongue. And what we know about the tongue is that it's speaking what the heart thinks or what the heart knows. See, we can say, oh, I just slipped out, but really there is truth, or there's something behind what came out of your mouth. The cursing words come from a cursing heart. A foul mouth comes from a foul heart. The only way to cleanse the tongue is to fill our heart with the word of God. And from Philippians, you speak whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, repute, and all that is excellent and worthy of praise. To fill our heart, not with ourself and the world, but to fill it with the word of God. I need to pray, and you need to pray with David from Psalm 141. Set, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. But this goes even further. This is not just talking about the letter words that we say. This is speaking about corruptive talk or, or foolish talk. Conversation that leads to sin, gossip, slander, malice. You may be able to stop swearing. But can you control your tongue to the point of not speaking ill of others? Maybe it's foolish stuff. Conversations that feed the flesh and not the soul. The positive, when he flips from the negative, but only such as good for building up. That's fits the occasion. Paul goes even further to say only is such to build up. That word only really concerns me because I'm not very good at it. Only such as to build up that shows grace to those who hear it. He gives us three things here. It's going to build up, it's going to be right for the occasion, and it's going to give grace to those who hear it. Man, my word stuff. I have spent and wasted so much time on unhelpful conversations that do not build up the soul. But he adds, but this is the occasion. You know, just because you're right or you have a rebuke that is necessary, it doesn't mean it's the right time. Just because you're right doesn't mean that you get to just spew out words whenever you want. As Christians, as new creations, we are thoughtful before we speak. We are slow to open our mouth. We would rather think about what's going on in the situation so that we can speak something that builds up and shows grace. So it's not only about controlling your tongue, as in swear words, but the conversations you have. Do they build up? Do they show grace? Are they fit for the occasion? 
one that strikes me, that strikes me the hardest is this one. Control the tongue. Be more thoughtful rather than talkative. Verse 30. Paul now sort of brings them together and, uh, and, and says that we aren't living this way, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. So let me read it. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. We are children of God. You know, at the end of chapter of us, chapter one, we are we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. He is sealing us, sealing us for the day of our salvation. And he wants us to know who the Holy Spirit is in us. Because then he says, well, we don't do these things. When we live in sinful habits and behaviors, we grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, grieve the Holy Spirit? Literally, it causes pain and causes the Holy Spirit to weep at our sin. Now, all sin hurts God. But when his children sin, it breaks his heart. And our sin of grieving the Holy Spirit, it literally means the Spirit that dwells within us, that we are exposing to these habits, is, is weeping and cause pain and feeling the weight of what we're doing. So his reminder, his doctrine that he's giving us is remember that the Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit is enabling you and can help you live these out. You're not there on your own and rich your teeth and tries to not lie and not steal and not be angry with sin and not speak foolishly. No, you're there with the Spirit, the power of God dwelling in you to help you stay from these things. The danger is when grieving becomes quenching. In 1 Thessalonians 5 19, it tells us that we can quench the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe that anyone who has the Holy Spirit can lose their salvation. Why would you teach that? He says that you get the Holy Spirit and he's your guarantee. But a Christian can live so long grieving the Spirit that after a while they have numbed to the conviction. The Spirit that is present in their life, that lives with them, is now blocked out by their own thoughts and their own sinfulness. And there's a barrier between him and you. And you set up all your thoughts and you'd rather listen to your things. This is the most unhappy person in the world. The one who has quenched the Holy Spirit. Because they are living in sin which they don't belong in. And they're not listening to conviction. And they can't enjoy the world that a worldly person would enjoy. And they have no joy in their salvation. Grieving leads to quenching. So when we're grieving the Spirit, come quickly to conviction. Listen to rebuke. Get into the Word and allow the Spirit to well up in you so that you will be reminded consistently of when you have stood up. There's no condemnation. There's no fear of being brought out and exposed for our sin. He is our helper, our comforter, our teacher, our advocate divine resident of our heart and guarantee of our eternal redemption. That's not someone who's there that's just knocking at us all the time. That's a caring, loving, gentle support 
and protect us with power. Power. He has the power to help us overcome, to help us put off and to put on. To live these out. In the midst of temptation, the only reason to abstain from sin is because of our holy God. He's our only motivation. We aren't trying to be good people because we want the world to love us. We want to be good people for the one who created and saved us. And the one who dwells in us. 31-32 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and calamity and slander be put off from you along with all malice. These sins all these sins break fellowship and destroy relationships. And as we have seen in this last section from the start of chapter 4, is all about the unity of the church. So why is Paul writing this list of sins that we shouldn't do and don't do? Because he loves the church. And he knows that these things unchecked are a great cause for the church to implode, to be destroyed from the inside. The man pleaded with him and asked for forgiveness, and the master forgave 
man who had the debts the master went out one day and saw his servant who owed him a hundred thousand. And he grabbed him by the neck and threatened him if he did not pay his money back. Well, others saw this and they reported it to the master. And the master calls him in and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And you shall not, uh, and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he paid his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you. You know, do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ultimately, we are going to do these things to each other. You, me, we're going to harm each other. We're going to live in falsehood at times. We're going to get angry with sin at times. We are maybe at times going to steal. And we will talk corruptively and foolishly at times. The point is that we're not going to fulfill all this and live all this perfectly but we have a choice to choose this. We have a choice to speak the truth and tell people we're struggling so we don't steal. Confront anger openly to forgive. None of us are entitled to forgive. None of us are entitled to anything. None of us deserve anything at all. We don't deserve people in this church to do anything for us. It's a gift. You didn't deserve the grace of Christ and forgiveness from Christ. It was a gift. And we show this gift continually to one another. This whole thing about living holy in the midst of church, our brother and sister, among our brothers and sisters, this new family. And it's only possible only possible for you while ever you remember Christ on the cross. While ever you remember how you came to be holy. It's only possible for you. The pursuit of holiness is only ever possible while you're motivated by the image of Christ on the cross. He is our motivation. It's not to be a better person in life that people may think better of us. It's simple mode. As we remember that when Christ hung on the cross, he claimed for us something we did not deserve, nor could ever achieve. Holiness. When Christ died, he claimed our holiness. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on him, the author, the beginning, and perfecter of our faith. He's not only the one who created your faith, made you holy and righteous, He's the one who will perfect you to the very end of your life, and you'll be glorified in heaven with Him. But we leave you with these questions to discuss, and I encourage you, the other set up there, the people that are on Zoom, two or three of you want to jump in there and chat to people online, that'd be great. But we leave you with these questions and I'll pray. What area of your life from these categories need to work through. And what doctrines give you reason to change? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it instructs us. The 
Lord, I thank you mostly that it reveals who you are to us. The Lord, how could we have ever known you without Christ crucified? How could we have known you, but Lord, how could we have entered into your kingdom without someone bearing the Christ for us? And then, Lord, how would we ever come to completion without the Spirit? Lord, I pray that for, for, for no one here, none of us, walking away going, I can't do this, Lord, that is the point, we can't do this. But your Spirit is in us, and you've given us the power to make the right choice, and to speak truth, and to work to give, and to not be angry with sin.